Election time is upon us, ladies and gentlemen, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, and one of the things that always comes gallivanting its way onto our television screens around this time is the joy of the party political broadcast. I'm sure you all know what I'm talking about. Little two, three, four minute clips that you get before your news or just as you're sitting down to eat your tea. And in these little clips we get each political party giving us these concrete reasons as to why we should vote for one particular party or another often based on policies that the parties say they're going to implement, which are undoubtedly going to improve all of our lives, make us all wealthy and come by our, all that kind of stuff. But also, as we well know, there's this other little element that we get, specifically in British politics, I think, of this kind of spin and mind games and tit-for-tat, and I said, he said, he said, this kind of thing. And if you've tuned into Question Time recently, as I'm sure you have, um, I'm pretty sure that I had more respectfully constructed arguments on the playground at school. <laughs> but before long, you start to realize that you're not only being asked to put your trust in a party or a set of policies, but you're actually being asked to vote for a particular person and an individual. The personality of these candidates will often influence how people vote. Channel 4 ran a profile documentary on the life of Jeremy Corbyn, for instance, and, and people on programs like Andrew Marshall they're concerned as to whether Theresa May's got the willpower and the personal fortitude to negotiate a good, a good Brexit deal for Britain in Brussels. And all the while, each party that wants to put across to you the virtues and the qualities of the individuals that lead them, and all the while playing down any negatives. The parties want to paint a particular picture of their leaders in your mind's eye, one of virtue and dignity and hard work, and any suggestion to the contrary is played down by the party in question and obviously highlighted by their opponents. And this idea, of course, is nothing new. We've seen this down through the centuries. If you look at different monarchs and noblemen and people of interest, they've all sought to influence the way that they'll be remembered and the way that you think of them. And they do this by doing stuff like commissioning statues and chroniclers and epitaphs to themselves to paint a certain picture in your mind's eye of what they were like. You know, think of people like Alfred the Great, or Alexander the Great. Now, these people clearly thought a lot of themselves, or at least they wanted you to think a lot of them. So against the backdrop of this, I just want us to consider quickly the picture the Bible paints of its protagonists and the picture that God wants to place in your mind of the main characters, if you like, in Scripture. I think particularly the Old Testament. They're not always portrayed as being that virtuous, are they? Think of Moses the murderer. Or Jonah the coward, you know, we've got it written over there. Jonah the running man, he did a lot of that. You know, the very name of Jacob means deceiver. So what does that tell you about him? Um, and yet, just pause and think for a second that God is actually happy to be known as the God of Jacob in the scripture. And specifically, as we come to look at this psalm, in the case of David, we get a really intimate and graphic account of his adultery and subsequent cover-up with Bathsheba. You know, this is a monarch and it's laid bare in front of us in the scripture. You know, you could be forgiven. It reads a little bit like an excerpt from OK Magazine or something. You know, he sleeps with a married woman and ends up effectively committing murder to try and cover it up. You know, it's like something straight out of a tabloid newspaper. But the point I'm trying to drive across is this. The Bible puts us under no illusions as to what human beings are actually like, whether they're people in positions of power or otherwise. There's no spin, there's no cover-up. We get the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, as it were. And why does it seek to do this? Well, the human condition's never really changed, has it? The scripture always seeks to speak to us in a way that is both truthful and relatable. 
how we can understand these characters and perhaps even relate to certain little aspects of their personality. God has peppered his word with situations and accounts of real people in scenarios which we will inevitably find ourselves in because we share the same humanity as the people that we're reading about. I don't think it's a coincidence that a song that speaks of a truly personal experience of David's life that we find here in Psalm 63 finds its way into the book of the whole collective Psalms, which were intended to be sung by the whole collection of Israel, the whole assembly of God's people. We're intended to identify with David's experience here. And as we come again to this psalm, I just if you can pop the text up behind me, that would be really helpful. If we can just scan over these verses. For instance, verse 1 tells us that David, he finds himself in a dry and weary land where there's no water, both literally and spiritually, and how many of us can say that we've found ourselves in a dry and weary place spiritually. We can't be bothered to go to church. We can't be bothered to pray. We don't want to get our Bibles out. We know what it's like to be in this position. Verse 9, there's people seeking to destroy David's life. Now, you might not have had anyone literally wanting to destroy your life, but I'm sure you've all been familiar with someone just trying to make your life a misery, trying to make things difficult for you. We know what it's like. And verse 6, he's meditating on God in the watches of the night. How many of us have wrestled and struggled with ideas about God in the dead of night when there's no one else around? I'm sure we've all done it. He's in a dire and difficult situation, David, and we will all experience this at certain points in our life. So I guess the most obvious question to ask at this juncture would be, well, what kind of difficulty and suffering does David find himself in in this psalm? And if you look at the little pretext before verse 1, you get this little kind of bit of context of the psalm which says that David finds himself in the wilderness of Judah. I don't know anything about the wilderness of Judah, but I'm going to assume it's not a very nice place to be. Anywhere that's described as a wilderness can't be that fun place to hang out. Um, But Bible scholars, they're not in total agreement as to what part of David's life this psalm is referring to, but they've kind of narrowed it down to two passages to be found in 1 and 2 Samuel. I'm just going to summarize them really briefly. Um, The first one comes from 1 Samuel chapter 23. Um, A little bit of background, David, he's been anointed by Samuel and therefore by God as being the future king of Israel. But the current king Saul, he naturally, he's not that mad keen on being kicked off his throne. So chaos ensues. And David eventually finds himself in chapter 23, hiding from Saul in a place called the Wilderness of Maon. And there's a group of people living there called the Ziphites. uh, And to try and get favor with Saul, they basically grasp David up uh, and tell Saul where he's hiding. And just when David thinks he's about to get captured, God miraculously intervenes and he sends the Philistines, wild people, um, to attack and divert Saul's attention elsewhere. And David escaped by the skin of his teeth. The second passage this could be referred to, um, and my ESV study notes tell me this is probably the more likely, um, is a passage from 2 Samuel chapter 15. Um, And this time, David is on the run from his own son, from Absalom. Just try and bend your head around that a second. Your own offspring is forced to flee for his life. Some of you think you've got wayward children. I'm trying to avoid the gaze of my mother at this point. (laughs) Um, But your kids haven't got anything on Absalom He essentially causes a mutiny against David in Israel. And we're told in verse 6 that he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. And if we fast forward to verse 14, we read this. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee, 
or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. So the king set out with his entire household following him, but he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out with all the people following him and they halted at the edge of the city. I'm just going to fast forward quickly to verse 24. Let me read this. Zadok was there too, and now Zadok is a priest. And all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar, who was another priest, offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Take the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do with me whatever seems good to him. The king said to Zadok the priest, do you understand? Go back into the city with my blessing. It's not 100% clear which text, to which text Psalm 63 is referring to. There's one or two things that don't completely match up with either. But for the purposes of this talk, I just want to focus a little bit more on this text that I've just read. I don't think it's doing the Bible a disservice to draw comparisons between the two texts because ultimately we're talking about the same person. We're talking about David. And we can safely assume... Whichever period in his life Psalm 63 is referring to, David is used to spending good chunks of his life in fear, in hiding, and in uncertainty. However, David's described in 1 Samuel chapter 13 as a man after God's own heart. And one look at our text and one look through any of the Psalms that David writes and you will understand that this is true. Look again at verse 1 of Psalm 63. He says, his soul faints for God. How many of us woke up this morning and said, my soul faints for you, God? We don't say that, do we? Fainting for bacon, maybe, maybe not for God. In verse 8, he says, his soul clings to God. So how does David find himself in this situation? He's a man after God's own heart, yet he's most probably in a ditch thinking, any minute, I'm going to feel a tip of the sword in the back of my neck, and it's going to be good night, Vienna. And if we look again at 2 Samuel 15, we see where David's relationship with God has sunk to in that passage. I'll read verse 25 again. And the king said to Zadok, take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. So we're at this point here where David is essentially thinking there's going to be a mass slaughter. And we get to this point where he's carted everyone out of the city and the priests bring out the Ark of the Covenant as well, the very symbol of God's presence with the people of Israel. Remember the story of the the guy in 2 Samuel chapter 6 who reached out hand to touch the Ark of the Covenant when it fell and dropped stone dead because he approached the Holy God with sinful hands. This is how important the Ark was in symbolizing God's presence and power in Israel. And the priests, they naturally assume, well, the Ark's coming with us, Right? It'd be unthinkable to assume that David would go anywhere, especially at a time like this, especially in a time of crisis, without the Ark of the Covenant. But look what he says. No, 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 send it back. I'll read it again. The king said to Zadok, take the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I'm not pleased with you, then I'm ready. Just let him do to me whatever seems good to him. In other words, I'm, I'm at a bit of a loss here. There's a possibility that God no longer finds any pleasure in me. Have any of you ever felt like that 
you know, my sins are too great. I've messed up one too many times. God can't possibly take delight in me anymore. Yet God has told David he's a man after his own heart, and through him his line is going to last forever. But David is saying, you know, I'm almost past caring. Look at verse 26. God, just do, do with me whatever seems good to you. So thinking again about what I said at the start about this idea of holistic worship, when your relationship with God looks like this, how are you going to come close to God in worship again? If we're going to give God the worship he deserves with all of ourselves, we're going to have to learn to draw near to him in situations even like this. There's an American pastor preacher called Paul Washer. Some of you might have heard of him. He's a good guy. I was listening to him preach once. And uh, he was telling this story about when he'd, he'd go walking with his son in the woods behind his house. He lived in a really, really rural, remote part of the state. And he says every now and again he'd take his young son walking with him and they'd be trotting along. And after a couple of hundred yards, his son would start to wander off. And he'd say to him, son, come back. You're going to get lost. You're going to get hurt if I can't see you. Son comes back a couple of hundred yards further. Son wanders off again. He says to him again, son, come back. You're going to get lost. You're going to get hurt without me. Comes back to him a couple of hundred yards again. You can tell what happens. Son wanders off again. He says, this time, I didn't call him back. He says, I let him wander. He says, I kept him in my eye line. I knew where he was. I could see him. But I didn't call out to him. And slowly he's walking along, the fear and the trepidation starts to appear in his face when he's looking around. He's, I can't, I can't see dad, where's dad gone? And Paul Washer, he says, some of you are going to say to me, I'm a cruel parent for doing that. He says, but I have taught him something. Because the way he clung to my leg, when I finally hove back into view, he says, you couldn't have prized him off with a crowbar. That is the way I want to cling to my saviour. David finds himself in this situation a little bit, doesn't he? He's looking around. He can't see God. He doesn't know where God's gone. But he knows what he's lost. I'll be honest, when I was preparing this talk, I realized I was in that place a little bit. My vision of God isn't as clear as what it should be. And he's not as close to me as he once was. Maybe the same is true of you. But come back with me again to Psalm 63, verse 3. David says, your steadfast love is better than life. David's in the pit. It can't get any worse for David at this point. And yet he can still say this because he's tasted the love and presence of God before and he knows it will come again. Verse 8, again, my soul clings to you. And verse 7, perhaps most poignantly, he says, you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings I will cling for joy. I got a mate called Shane, some of you all know him. He's been here to preach a couple of times. He's done a bit of ID and that kind of thing. I was talking to him once and he said to me, you know what, I can argue the whys and the wherefores and the circumstances to why God allows suffering and why God has allowed suffering to come into my life. But he says, when, it all, when it's all said and done, when it hits the fan, where else am I going to turn? This is what this psalm's saying to us. Where else are you going to go when trouble strikes? You know, are you going to go to the places that the world flees to when faced with adversity, pleasure-seeking, cheap thrills, things that are gone in a moment? Pastor Paul told us in the very first talk in this series that as human beings, it's inherently built into us to worship something. It doesn't matter what it is, pleasure, power, money, God. We have this desire in us to give ourselves to certain things. And before we started this series, we just finished one in Ecclesiastes. And what's one of the fundamental things that we learned from that series? 
and that was that giving ourselves over to the worship and devotion of something other than our maker is likened to what? Like chasing after the wind. Asaph was another strikingly down-to-earth, relatable Bible character. He authored some of the other Psalms. In Psalm 73, verse 25, he says this, Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing I desire beside you. And David knows this all too well. In Psalm 63. So as we continue, David is also able to know this and do this by relying on the truth of the character of God. And just briefly, what I want to do is just flip forward in time a little bit to the New Testament, to another Bible story thousands of years later, and another person who felt far from God and needed to be reminded of the importance of truth in worship. But this time, not just because of suffering and difficult circumstances, but because of the circumstances surrounding her own sinfulness. I'm talking, of course, of the story of the woman at the well in John 4, which we've already had highlighted to us in this series. Hopefully we're getting a little bit more familiar with this story as we go through. I'm sure we'll come back to it again before this series is finished. But just a little reminder and a little recap. Jesus has come to draw water. He gets talking to a Samaritan woman, naturally considered unclean by Jewish people because of their dual heritage. She's partly Jewish, partly Sumerian. So Jesus shouldn't really be talking to her even for a kickoff by their standards. But Jesus, in verse 14, he makes a staggering offer of living water which will well up to eternal life. But we quickly discover that this woman's got a somewhat checkered past when Jesus exposes that she's been through five husbands and she may have intentions on a sixth. And her response to being discovered could be considered a little bit of a strange one, but I think it's one that bears a lot of relevance to the topic that we're looking at today. And she chooses, of all things, to ask Jesus a question about worship. Seems like an odd thing to do in this situation. She's no doubt more than likely feeling horribly embarrassed, probably quite stunned. But Jesus seems to know all about her. She describes him later as a man who knew everything I ever did. But she chooses to ask Jesus what might seem a seemingly innocuous question. Look at it in verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is only in Jerusalem. I don't know if you've ever heard this text preached on before, but I've, I've certainly been told at different parts of my life that she's just changing the subject here because she's embarrassed. She's asking like a nonsensical question to divert Jesus' attention away from her adultery. There might be an element of truth to that, I don't know. But certainly when I look at this text, I see a heartfelt plea from this woman in light of her sin. Bear in mind our original text from Psalm 63. We've been thinking about worshipping God when he seems far away from us and when we're lost in difficult circumstances as David was in the wilderness. And here we see a woman who's no doubt been told by everyone that she can't draw near to God even if she wanted to. Consider three things about her. Number one, she's an adulteress. So already she's a kickoff. She's probably thinking she's too filthy to approach God. She can't come near to God in worship. She can't go to Jerusalem. Number two, she's a woman. Sorry, ladies, but that didn't put you in good stead in Jewish culture, I'm afraid. And number three, she's a Samaritan, so just by virtue of her genetics, she's considered no doubt unfit to approach God in worship. So it sounds an awful lot to me like she's saying that given everything that I am and everything that I've done, how can I even go near to Jerusalem in worship to God? 
The temple in Jerusalem, no doubt, symbolized the utmost purity and holiness to her. The very presence of God dwelt in this city in her mind, probably. You know, we sometimes call it the holy city, don't we? How is she going to get close to God in light of all this? Jesus tells her in verse 24, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship, not necessarily in the temple, not necessarily in physical places, but in spirit and in truth. I just want us to meditate on that phrase for a couple of seconds. Worshiping in spirit and truth. How do we go about this? What does this mean? I was pretty unsure myself, so I went to John Piper, like most people would. <laughs> and when preaching on this passage, I was reading a little excerpt from, from one of his talks, and he says this. He, says he understands spirit in this context to mean authentic, Holy Spirit-inspired intensity in your innermost being, that your feelings and your emotions must be involved in the worship of God. And of truth, he says that worship must also be informed by true views of God as revealed in his character and in his word. If you think of these aspects of two pillars, if you like, and if one gets removed, then your worship falls flat. And tragically, I believe that we've seen an example of this just a few nights ago, these tragic events in Manchester and others that we've seen like it. Ask yourself, what motivated that guy to blow himself up, take the lives of children and families and cause such an awful tragedy. You can't argue with that guy. He didn't have intensity in his spirit for what he believed in. He had so much of it that he gave his life. But the fact of the matter is this. What he believed and what he'd given his life to was false. It was not the truth. How tragic is it, primarily for his victims, but also for himself, that his view of the character of God as a bloodthirsty tyrant who rewards his followers for mindless mass slaughter is not the God that we find in Scripture it is an awful tragedy to worship an idea of God that is not, is not informed by the truth. Alternatively, it's also tragic to know the scriptures inside out and yet not engage what's in here. To use it as a box ticking exercise and to not engage with it emotionally. Think of the Pharisees. They prided themselves on knowing every letter and every nuance of the Old Testament. But all that was involved in their spirits and in their emotions was the desire to use it to improve their own standing before God, or so they thought, and also to look better in front of people to gain more respect. We're told in the New Testament, they made lengthy prayers. They liked to be given the best seat at banquets. They wanted to puff up their own egos. But in reality, Jesus tells them that they they don't know the scriptures. They've missed the point, and they can't see the wood through the trees because they've not had their souls touched by the life-changing power of the scriptures. So how does all this bear relevance to our original text, Psalm 63, and to the woman at the well? But if you come back with me to Psalm 63 briefly, as I said before, David consoles himself with the truth of what he knows about God. Keep thinking spirit and truth. See how he does it. Verse 3, he says, your steadfast love is better than life. Verse 7, you have been my help. Verse 8, your right hand upholds me. Verse 11, the mouths of liars will be stopped. These are pillars of truth that he's hanging on to. These are things that he's experienced and he's known personally. And he marries this up with his spirit, with his innermost feelings and emotions. Look again at verse 1. God, my soul is thirsting for you. My flesh faints for you. Marries it up with the truth of God. 
He says, Lord, you've been my help. I know you have. I've experienced it before, and I'm going to trust you and draw on this truth in my hour of need. Thus, David demonstrates authentic worship to God. How authentic it is. There's no hint of, there's no falsehood. There's no flowery language here. It's, it's dead simple, isn't it? Lord, I need you. I'm in trouble. And I'm going to rely on what I know to be true. And that is that you'll help me and that you'll comfort me. Likewise, the woman at the well, she's got that innermost desire in her heart to worship God as she questions Jesus about how she's supposed to get there, how she's supposed to do it. All she's lacking is the truth of how to get there. And what is the truth that she discovers? John 4 verse 25 says this. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah who is called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus replied, I who speak to you am he. Who is called Christ? Now the word Christ or Messiah literally means anointed one. But the word often carries with it connotations of deliverance or salvation from something. The Jewish people thought they were going to get delivered from Roman occupation. But in truth, all this woman needed was to hear that she could be delivered from her sin. And she could effectively worship God because of this. Now we can only assume that she did this because we're told in verse 39 that many others believed because of her testimony. My dad said to me earlier this week that the good place to end the sermon is at the cross. So here goes. I've been reading a little bit of a book called uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology in preparation for this talk. Uh, some of you might have heard it. It's a massive, great, thick book about that big, about as thick as a chair. Like, um, and I looked up the little section on worship and he highlights some really helpful stuff um, about the benefits of authentic worship to God. He says stuff like, we find delight in God when we worship properly. Psalm 84, the psalmist learned how lovely the dwelling place of the Lord is. Also, God finds delight in us when we bring worship to him. Isaiah 62 says, God will rejoice over us because we are his bridegroom. And most poignantly for today, perhaps, he talks about how we can draw near to Almighty God through worship. As we learn in Hebrews 10, verse 19, he says, we can have confidence to enter the presence of God through the blood of Jesus. Through the blood of Jesus. We had communion last week, and Paul spoke a little bit before we took it about this barrier that's being created between us and God. And just as the curtain in the temple was ripped in two when Jesus was crucified, so the dividing wall of sin that separates us from God has been torn down and access to God in worship has been made available to us. Ash asked us to meditate last week, I think, or the week before, about the fact that worship is actually an activity that will carry on into eternity. It's not just something we're going to do here. We're going to be doing it forever. And it is only by the blood of Christ atoning for our sins that it is possible for us to do this. So if you're here for the first time, if you don't come very often, you might be wondering what on earth I've been rabbiting on about for the last half an hour or so. But I'm guessing you've been drawn here on some level, some level of interest in Christianity. Something's brought you here. Maybe not, maybe you've been dragged there against your will. But, but if having access to God and reassurance in the truth, satisfaction in your heart is something you're being drawn to, and I invite you to consider the offer Jesus makes to you of forgiveness and hope through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead.
If you've been a Christian for a while, and you're going through it at the minute, you're in a difficult place, God seems far away, you're suffering, you might be in difficulty and strife, you might be trapped in sin. If you're feeling like David, you're feeling like the woman at the well, and you're wondering how you can give God his rightful place in your life, and how you can worship God in the way that he's asked of you, we preach the truths of the scripture to ourselves, as David did. Reassure yourself of what you know about God to be true and what you know that he's done for you through the blood of Jesus. I just want to finish by quoting a song. Um, it's from this little Christian duo called Shane and Shane. Most of you will know this song. Um, it's called Though You Slay Me. Um, and it talks of worshipping God through suffering and pain. And the chorus reads like this. Though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Though you take from me, I will bless your name. Though you ruin me, still I will worship. Sing a song to the one who's all I need.